I'm Dr. Ethel Tungohan, an Associate Professor of Politics at York University. This is Academic Antis. Today, we're bringing you a subject that has infuriated me, touching on so many of the themes of this podcast. When I was living in the UK for part of my sabbatical, I visited the British Museum. While I marveled at its various exhibits, a part of me felt unsettled. While looking at artifacts taken from countries that Britain has colonized, I kept remembering debates regarding the need to return these artifacts to the countries where they were stolen. I left the museum and didn't really think about it again until over a week ago when I came across a tweet made by Yilin Wong. Yilin is an award-winning writer, poet, editor, and translator based in Vancouver. In that tweet, Yilin called out the British Museum Yes, the British Museum, that big national institution, holder of stolen artifacts and symbol of British colonialism. She called the British Museum out for using her work translating feminist 19th century Chinese poet Zhou Jin without credit and more importantly, without permission. And then, in real time, via Twitter, we saw Yilian document her ordeal of wondering what was going on to trying to get the British Museum to own up to and rectify their mistake to then battling misrepresentations and accusations when the British Museum doubled down on their refusal to make things right. Yilian now has no choice but to take legal action against the British Museum. She needs to raise £15,000 by July 10 to retain a lawyer and begin her legal fight. And we want your help, dear listeners, in supporting this cause. Have a listen to my conversation with Yilin on why we need to name the translator. Yilin, thank you so much for joining us. We're going to get into your fight with the British Museum in a moment, but I want to start with the work of Chojin, whose voice and words you've been trying to amplify. Can you tell us more about the work of Cho Jin and what does her work mean to you? Yeah, so Cho Jin was a modern feminist poet who lived in China at the end of the 19th century. And um, she was an activist, a feminist, a poet, and even a um, publisher of a feminist newspaper that she ran briefly um, during her brief 31 years of life, she left behind over 200 poems, which I'm slowly working to translate into English from Mandarin. And um, she writes a lot about women's relationships and friendship, about platonic relationships, about gender issues, about cross-dressing, um, about women from Chinese history, um, including poets and heroines like Mulan, who she mm. holds up as like a mirror of kind of her own kind of experiences. And um, I'm really interested in kind of translating her work because she was um, a poet who really stood out in her era and is also timely for readers today. She was very different and progressive, even compared to other women writers and poets uh, of her time and also before that. She sounds amazing and kind of hearing you describe her work and her contributions, I can tell that, you know, her work means a lot to you as well. And you've spent a significant amount of time translating her work. Can you tell us a little bit more about why it was so important for you to undertake that labor of translating her work? Very few women poets uh, get translated from Chinese. Mm. There is a big gender imbalance when it comes to translating. 
And furthermore, even though there are older dated translations of Choding's poetry, nearly all of them were completed by academics for mm. like an academic audience. And they really, mm. did, really didn't focus too much on the poetry. They really didn't focus too much on the poetics of the work. I am coming to the translation as a poet and as a reader. And that's what I'm interested in kind of bringing out in translating her poetry, as well as in kind of highlighting the themes that she wrote about for Sino-Diaspora readers, for readers of color, women of color, and also to contribute to global conversations of feminism. That's absolutely such an important undertaking. And I really am nodding a lot as you were saying that most of the translations um, have been done by academics and you're entering this as a poet. Can you talk a little bit about what this process looks like? Because I think for some people who are listening to the podcast, they might not necessarily be aware that translation takes a lot of work, that it takes a lot of energy, that it's not merely a matter of I don't know, getting a dictionary and like translating it word by word. Yeah. So it is a labor of love and it takes mm. so much time and energy. When I start translating a new poet, I try my best to locate their full body of work and mm. read the full body of work multiple times. So for Chojin, that required hunting down multiple copies of her poetry, which were almost all published after her death. Mm. And many of them have even gone out of print in Chinese because of systemic erasure as well of feminism in China. And then I would research, you know, her life and the times that she lived in, the historical context, the social political context, how she was connected to other women and writers and activists at the time how she referenced other, again, historical figures and her relationships with them. And I would carefully annotate the poems that I'm translating and also consult, you know, multiple academic and non-academic sources that analyze and discuss the poetry. And then I was set out to translate. And oftentimes I find myself translating a poem, you know, 10 to 15 times in terms of the number of drafts to find the right words, because I am having to find ways to, you know, capture the spirit of the poetry, not just the literal meaning, the emotional kind of context and the weight and how it feels, the various illusions, imagery. Yeah. That's such important context, because I think a lot of listeners, and even I myself, was not aware of how much contextualization is needed, how much historicization is needed, how much work is needed to translate a poem, right? And did you say you you, you would translate it 15, 15 times? or what, what Yeah, 10 to 15 drafts are okay. pretty common. Yeah. Uh, okay, okay. So this is a lot of work, right? It's not just work, as I said, that involves getting a dictionary and translating it. You have to do a lot of kind of research. You have to spend a lot of time annotating and historicizing and contextualizing. So you publish this work and then you find out that in the British Museum's exhibit that they use your work 
without attribution. How did you first hear about what the British Museum did? And can you tell us about the moment you found out about this and how you felt? Yeah. So given that I had published some translations of children's poetry back in 2021, uh, many academics and writers and literary translators and readers of Chinese poetry um, knew that I am a translator of children's poetry. I have been known for that work. And so when this exhibition came out, and specifically was focusing on the late Qing, and also had a section on Chojing specifically with her poetry, I started hearing from many people around me, both mm. people in London and also people online, who had heard about the exhibit and drew it, you know, to my attention. And one of them even asked me, you know, was I involved? You know, did I contribute translations? They saw some translations that looked like mine, you mm. know? And so I started investigating. And I found, you know, multiple pictures and videos showing that the words look exactly like, you know, my translation, even with the same punctuation marks. It was just copy and pasted. And um, later on, I found a video that showed a 23-line poem, the full translation of a poem, had been, you know, taken and exhibited at the museum on like a giant kind of visual display <gasps> without any credits or can they, without even telling me. And that was on exhibit for over a month, you know, before I found out. So I was really, really shocked that this had happened. And, and when I discovered it, I was also actually writing an essay about translating Cho Jing, you know, for my upcoming book. So I was writing about, you know, the, challenges and barriers that writers of color and translators of color and women of color can face in translation. And then I discovered this. So I was so stunned. I mean, it's so, it's so, I don't even have the words, right? Like you're writing this essay, you're trying to make sure that, you know, that, that, people, women of color especially, are appropriately recognized, especially translators. And then this happens. Then you find out about this. And it's not something that can be can be kind of excused by saying, oh, it was an oopsie, right? It was a 23-line poem that was in one of the big panels of the exhibit, right? Like, that's, that's right. The full poem. <laughs> oh my gosh. I'm so sorry. And so you find out about this. You're shocked. What did you then do? Well, so then I posted on Twitter because, you know, how else are you going to alert the British Museum to the fact that they had taken your translations and infringed your copyright and didn't even bother to notify you, you know, that they were using it. So, so that's what I did. And, um, you know, I demanded that they actually, you know, credit the translator and, you know, pay the translator and take steps to fix this. But their response has kind of just made it made things worse and, you know, added insult to injury instead of trying to take actions to quickly fix it. So let's backtrack for a little bit. So you tweet about this. You contact the British Museum directly. Um, and so you say it adds insult to injury. What do you mean? Like, what was the British Museum's response? Well, so after I tweeted, I heard from the British Museum. First, I heard from one of the co-organizers of the exhibition, 
who basically was like, we just forgot to put your name on a list of translators at the exhibition. And over 400 people helped with this exhibit and we appreciate your help. That was literally the first email. And I was like, I did not help. I was not consulted. It was without my consent. Why are you making it seem like you just forgot a name in like one spot? And then after that, there were a series of emails that got increasingly worse because Ugh. I thought they were quite condescending. Absolutely. And so full disclosure to our listeners, I am active on social media. So a lot of you know this. I log on to Twitter. I saw Yulin's tweets and I was flummoxed. I was shocked and I was really angry. Uh, so I also sent the British Museum an email and they basically sent a form email that I think a lot of other people had posted that basically says it was an unintentional error and we take copyright very seriously. Uh, so and I, and I think they also had this tweet on their main page. The British Museum said that this is an unintentional error. Do you believe this? Well, the thing is, if they really feel apologetic and it was just, you know, like a mistake, an accident, the fact that they have kind of taken so long to, you know, kind of do anything and try to actually fix it um, makes me question that mm. because there are so many ways they could have, you know, taken steps to credit me properly, to, you know, offer payments for the time they've used it without credits. They've also used it in a book that has a print run of 30,000 copies. And, you know, instead they have removed my translations and also the Chinese poetry as well and are refusing to credit me. And they are just almost pretending, you know, it didn't happen and trying to just erase what's going on and would not even offer a better apology. So... I'm just kind of trying to process this, right? Like you contact them, they have tweets, there's several emails that were sent, they put out a message out there saying this was an unintentional error. And then they've also started saying that they took down your translations and took down part of the exhibit that featured Shoujin because you said that you wanted this. Is this true? It's completely misrepresenting what I asked for. You know, what did you ask for? When they sent me the first email that tried to present it as if they had just forgotten my name rather than commit a copyright infringement, you know, I wrote an email back and stated that they didn't have my permission and they couldn't use my translations unless they paid me. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I've demanded for credits. I've demanded for, you know, reinstatement with payments. I've demanded that they issue an apology explaining what they did wrong exactly and how they'll avoid doing this in the future. And, um, you know, a lawyer has helped and they've declined multiple times to do any of this. And they initially, you know, even offered to send me like a form to seek permission. And then within 24 hours, because they hadn't heard back and I didn't get a chance to even respond. They were like, no, we are not going to reinstate your translations and we're not going to credit you because you will not be in the exhibit. Like, that's what they said. 
So it got really hostile. Wait, hang on. So I'm just, again, maybe I'm just slow on the uptake because there's a lot of things that they could have done correctly, right? Like you alert them. If it really was an unintentional error, you alert them that this happened. You alert them that you need to be recognized. You alert them that you're the translator, right? They email you back. They try to send you basically a release form, right? To give you, for you to give permission. And then they take it back. That's right. So after the first email and my response, you know, they sent me another email offering a release form. And in the same email offering the release form, they kind of emphasize, oh, like we're an academic institution, you know, other kind of contributors let us use their work for free or like at a very, very low cost while they were, you know, doing that. And before I even got a chance to respond, they were like, no, actually, we have decided to remove it and not credit you anymore. So I feel like this is a weird and hostile escalation, right? So they offer you the form. They say, give us permission. You didn't have a chance to respond. They just take it back. And then they say, we're just going to remove all of your translations. And correct me if I'm wrong, but also remove references to Shoujin's work in the exhibit. Is that is that what's happening? They removed the Chinese poetry with the <gasps> English. What? <laughs> yeah. So there's just no, like, her actual poems in the exhibition at all anymore, whether in Chinese or in English. Despite the fact a lot of people attending, I'm sure, know Chinese as well. So this is even more galling because part of your work, your life's work, has been to to rectify the fact that female poets don't really get translated and are erased, right? That's so, right. <laughs> like, so they've erased Chojing <laughs> as well as the translator now. Yeah. You know? They've, they've erased her and they've erased you, right? That's like, right. Oh That's my right. gosh. That's awful. And, and they're saying that it's because it's too difficult to change it exhibition even though they were able to remove everything overnight wait too difficult how like what, i don't what, understand what do you... <laughs> it's their like, excuse what perplexes me is that you know they could have they could have just kind of credited you right they could have just like offered fair pay and yet they did it and i think what drives me bonkers is knowing that they this is not a free exhibit right like each ticket costs what like is it 18 pounds that's right so each ticket costs 18 pounds. The books are also for sale. The, there was also an audio guide to like an app store that was also for sale. And they're you know continuing to print this book. And they also received a grant from a council in the UK that was over 700,000 pounds over four years you know, to do research for this exhibition. I am shaking my head because I just don't understand how it would be hard to give credit and it would be hard to just kind of amend the exhibit a little bit. Instead, they just kind of remove <laughs> this section on 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 shoujin and poetry, right? Like, it's just, it, it, it boggles the mind. Like, I... I don't know. I just, I'm, I'm quite frankly, quite shocked. Um, the British Museum is holding firm. I just, I'm just appalled. What are you doing now? What, what comes next? What are your next steps? Yeah. So 
because I have no choice at this point, because discussions with the British Museum have completely broken down, and they're you know misrepresenting my words publicly to journalists, I've decided that I would start to fundraise for legal action. Um, I'm receiving help from a law firm in the UK. Um, I can't share who they are yet because they won't be officially retained unless I meet my fundraising goal. But I'm using this site called Crowd Justice, which mm -hmm. uses a crowdfunding platform to support folks fundraising to take legal action. And often they support various kind of human rights related causes. And I'm aiming to raise uh, money by July 10th in order to launch, you know, basic action against the British Museum. So that's kind of my next steps. This is incredibly important. We will link it to the show notes and also amplify this, this site and this fight, right? Because I guess that's another thing I wanted to ask you. Why is this fight so important? Why is it important to recognize the translator? Why is it not just about you, right? Like, why should people care about the politics of this all? Yeah, it's really important in a number of ways. So translators are often under-recognized for their labor. There's been a movement over the last few years on social media and in publishing called hashtag name the translator because translators are often erased in publishing in academia and by institutions. Um, so it calls for, you know, kind of publishers and book reviewers and institutions and academics to always name the translator of translated works. So that's an ongoing thing. So it's especially shocking and disappointing for translators to not be credited. Um, the other thing is that given how poorly the British Museum has handled the situation, it risks really setting a bad precedent, you know, in terms of how creative folks, whether writers, translators, artists, their intellectual property and creative works get treated by the British Museum. You know, if we don't address this and hold them accountable, it's a cycle that can repeat itself. And other institutions may also be taking note as well. And we really want to avoid this in the future. So I'm trying to set a legal precedent here with this action so that they really take copyright and moral rights more seriously and avoid doing this. And if, you know, they make a mistake, they try to fix it right away instead of doubling down. Absolutely. And I think one thing that kind of strikes me about what's happening here is that they did this to you. They've probably done this to other people, right? Who wouldn't want to take on the British Museum, other translators who, do you know what I mean? Just don't want to fight such a big entity. So you're you're paving the way for this fight that I'm pretty sure other people, you know, would appreciate because it's happened to them too, right? So kudos Kudos to you. And also, you know, you're you're in Vancouver, right? Like you're not right. you're not in England. So this is all happening from a distance. How is that for you? How is it like kind of trying to take on this big behemoth like the British Museum from far, far away? How are you kind of <laughs> surviving yeah, and it coping? Is, it is kind of shocking, you know, that they would do this 
to me, especially, you know, as someone in a different country. And again, you know, they only gave me 24 hours to respond before they revoked their offer. And there's an eight hour time difference between Vancouver and Linden. So literally, I just didn't have time at all, you know, to respond and consult someone. So it is really unfair that this is happening, given the kind of time differences. And that's creating like an additional challenge as well. I do think it also, because it's so international, that it affects, you know, folks in Canada, folks in the UK, and folks kind of everywhere. Because, like, what if I never found out, you know, that the British Museum did this to me because I didn't live in London and, you know, didn't know about the exhibition. They could have used it for however many months that the exhibition went on without any credit or payment or accountability. So that still kind of really bugs me. Yeah, and I think what kind of angers me so profoundly is the fact that it's the British Museum doing this, right? I mean, in terms of conversations that are being had, seeking accountability from institutions that have plundered other countries like, you know, art and cultural artifacts. I mean, the British Museum, I had, I would have thought would try really, really hard to rebuild their reputation, but they're not. They're holding firm and they're now erasing your work. They're erasing, you know, the work of the translator, right? Like, it's just, it's appalling. I just, I'm shaking my head. Um, final question. So other than providing support through your, uh, your site, which again, we'll link to in the show notes, how else can listen help? Yeah, so I would urge listeners again to kind of spread the word on social media about what is happening. Um, I have a big presence on Twitter, but I'm not on other platforms. So if folks want to boost on you know, Facebook and Instagram and TikTok and other venues, if folks want to spread the word among academic circles, museum circles, you know, queer and trans studies, because Chojin wrote a lot about those topics as well. Um, Chinese literature circles, you know, translator circles, obviously, um, that would all really, really help. Um, I would really appreciate folks writing letters, you know, to the trustees of the museum, to donors, to the council that funded this exhibition. Um, that would also be really helpful. And just um, let's work together, you know, to kind of try to hold the British Museum accountable so that they do not kind of ever do this again. And that they, you know, actually fix the mistake that they caused. Thank you so, so much. We are here with you uh, and we are here to support you and amplify your fight because I think it's really, really important for all of us to hold these colonial institutions into account and to make sure that your work doesn't get erased. So thank you so much, Yulin, for popping by Academic Antis. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. And that's Academic Antis. If there's a running thread that ties many of our episodes together, it's the need to fight the structural inequities that invisibilize the lived experiences of women, women of color, and communities that have historically been marginalized in academia. This includes the erasure of the broader community of academics, artists, translators, and writers. And it's these big colonial institutions like the British Museum that perpetuate these erasures, as well as people working in these institutions that maintain these inequities with their refusal to do the right thing. 
We need to fight to ensure that academia and other colonial bodies truly confront these endemic practices of erasure, of extraction, of unethical behavior. For me, this isn't just an issue of copyright infringement by the British Museum. It's also about my frustration with the senior academics who received an enormous grant of hundreds of thousands of pounds to mount this exhibit. Why didn't they contact Yileen about the use of her work? Why didn't they allocate part of the grant to pay the translators? After this happened, why didn't they use their contacts to try to make this right for Yileen, who, as a freelance writer, doesn't have the benefit of being part of an academic institution that has copyright lawyers and now has to crowdsource her legal fees? And this is just so symbolic of my frustration with academics from all disciplines who continue to extract knowledge from communities without thinking about their ethical obligations towards these communities and about whether they are the right people to be doing this work. I am frustrated with funding bodies that perpetuate colonial inequities by continuing to fund extractive research. The issue for me is fundamentally this. What are our ethical obligations as people who are part of fundamentally colonial institutions like the British Museum and by extension, like the neoliberal academy, to ensure that our work and our practices and our norms don't cause harm? So I'm clearly motivated to help fight this, and I hope you are too. Please, 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 please donate to Yileen's Legal Fund to hold the British Museum accountable. We need to raise £15,000 by July 10 so that a legal claim can be filed on time to make sure that Shojin's voice is restored in the exhibit in a way that names the translator and that sets a precedent that these awful norms of academia are not acceptable. We have a link to the fund in the show notes, and you can also find a link to it at academicantis.com. And no matter what, please spread the word to everyone in your networks. We really appreciate it. Today's episode of Academic Antis was produced by myself, Wayne Chu, and Dr. Nisha Naff. Tune in next time when we talk to more Academic Antis. Until then, take care, be kind to yourself, and don't let the British Museum continue being an asshole. <laughs>